Here we go. All right, we're up and live. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode, I think we're up to 13 now, Underscope Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Misher. What's going on, Dr. Misher? How you doing? I'm doing good. I know you just finished up with some grading here, so we're looking to a well-deserved break for everyone. How are you feeling about that? I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, the first thing I got to ask is, Dr. Misher, your beard is crazy. It is absolutely ferocious right now. When did you start growing that out? Um, probably right around the time I started at Widener, which was fall of 2016. I think it was just kind of stubble at that point. Um, so yeah, been about four years. I feel, like that's, I feel like that's really long for four years. I don't know. I, my beard would never get that long, but. Well, you know, what they say is if you're, um, if you're bald, you have a higher ability to be able to grow a beard. I don't, I don't know what the reason is, but I've heard that. So everything <laughs> just kind of slid down. Was it, was there any reason you wanted to grow out your beard? You were just like, yeah, hey, you know, I'm going to think I'm going to grow it out. No. Nah. Just wanted to. <laughs> Do you ever think there'll, there'll be a day when you have to, when you have to cut it off? Probably. I mean, before, before I had this, um, believe it or not, I had a ponytail. Um, oh, that'd be so I cut cool. that off right before I started at Widener, but you know, I'm bald, so it really doesn't look right. It's more of like a skullet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that beard grows down to your knees. Um, all right, Dr. Mishra, I, I definitely want to ask you, um, I want to start here. So you're from Chicago. Um, what part of Chicago are you from? Um, I grew up in the South Suburbs. Um, when I was really young, I was in a, a city called Oak Forest. And then around fifth grade, we moved to an area called um, it was called Homer Township at the time, and I think it's it's now a city called Homer Glen. Hmm. It's sandwiched between Lockport and Orland Park, for those who are familiar with the Chicago area. Um, and then I was there, well, pretty much until I went to um, undergrad. Hmm. What do you, I, now I know you're a big Chicago Cubs fan, right? Mm-hmm. You always been a Cubs fan. Is there like what? Is there like certain districts that like make you a White Sox versus Cubs fan, or like just like um, whatever? So I really wasn't into sports as a, as a kid or growing up. Um, it was really not until I was in grad school when I started to get into sports. Um, <laughs> in general, for Chicago, the South Side is White Sox and the North Side is Cubs. The suburbs are kind of free for all because mm. I wasn't in Chicago proper. Gotcha. Okay. But when I was in grad school, you know, I hung out with the with a bunch of people who were Cubs fans, and and that became my team. It must have been super relieving back in 2016 when they won the World Series. It, was that the longest championship drought in sports history? I believe so. Okay, that's I mean, at least in baseball, but I believe so. They, I mean, that drought was incredible. I. I I mean, it's crazy now. It's four years ago now um, that they won it. But uh, what, what's one thing? Like another one's on the horizon anytime soon. Hopefully, hopefully. I, I, I hope I hope Chicago definitely needs some uh, – because the Blackhawks are always really good. The Bulls, you know, they haven't been good for a while. But, you know, they, they, need, some, they need some love over there. And then you had the Bears who were doing great until we let Nick Foles start. <laughs> well, hey, look, he won the Eagles the Super Bowl. So, I don't know if you want to – I'm not, you know, hey – um what's something in chicago that like a lot of people do that's overrated and then something that not enough people do that's underrated don't oh, that's a hard question don't you um, i mean 
from a, a tourist standpoint, okay, I'm going to go to the food example. Go ahead. <laughs> the yeah, the go pizzas, ahead. the pizzas, all right? Deep dish Chicago style pizza is great, but people don't realize that the thin crust Midwest pizza is also special. Mm. Um, and I haven't found anything like it out here. Really? Um, it's the square cut, thin crust, but not too thin. It's usually dusted with cornmeal on the bottom. Um, and, you know, everybody knows the deep dish Chicago pizzas. And then there's another one that not everybody knows is the Italian beef sandwiches, which is also a Chicago thing. Really? Beef Shaved Italian beef. And they top it with uh, mozzarella and gardenera and they dip it in the juice. That sounds delicious. Holy crap. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people too, you know, they go to Chicago for the first time. They do all the tourist stuff. They do downtown, Magnificent Mile. Is the bean Chicago. there? Is that where the bean is? What's that bean thing? The bean is downtown Chicago. Um, that's out by Grant Park, which is a, a big park out there. What is that? Like, is there any symbol? Like, what what is it even there for? It's art. Just, just <laughs> art. Just a big bean. <laughs> Okay. I, I mean, the bean wasn't there when I was a kid, so okay. it, it's it's art. You know, it's it's a well-known landmark now, but it wasn't there when I was growing up. Well, Chicago is definitely a city I definitely want to um, visit, um, for sure. It's super, super cold up there, though, but I mean, I guess it's it not is. that different than Philadelphia. It is, and that's one of the things that surprised me when I moved out to the, the Philly area, because we're roughly the same latitude as Chicago. But it's significantly warmer here, probably because of proximity to the ocean. Yeah, I was gonna say that. Doesn't the lake somehow make it colder? I don't really know. Like, yeah, we have something in Chicago called the lake effect, and it it usually is a cooling effect. Well, either way, I know I definitely want to at least visit Chicago once in my life. Definitely catch a Wrigley Field or some. Wrigley's great. Wrigley Wrigley Field. Um, the area around there is all bars and restaurants. Uh, the Goose Island Brewery is there. Um, Goose Island is originally a Chicago beer. I know there's a brewery in Philly now, too. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and I, and I hear they've expanded that area around Wrigley, too. I haven't been back there in a while. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, maybe we'll go out there sometime. Once once they allow fans back in, we'll catch a, catch a yeah. game. Um, but, yeah, so – that's awesome. I, I definitely want to hit up Chicago sometime. All right, Dr. Mischer. So we'll hop, we'll hop right into this now. So I want to ask you a little bit of time about like, I guess your undergrad. So, I mean, you started as a, you, you, you were a chemistry major in, as your undergrad. Um, do you mind telling us like where you went and like how you decided to, how you like wanted to become a chemistry major? Well, to be honest, <laughs> when I was a kid, I had some chemistry sets and I was fond of burning things in the basement and mixing things together and seeing what happened. <laughs> um, back in the early days of the internet, um, there was something that, that went around a text document called the Anarchist Cookbook, which oh, had all sorts God. of interesting recipes in there. And I taught myself how to make gunpowder at home, which at the time you could buy all the ingredients at the pharmacy. I don't know if that's still true. Mm -hmm. Um, then I was fascinated by how you mix different chemicals in and you get different colored flames and you, know, you put some copper in there and you get this blue green flame. And so, you know, I spent a lot of messing around in my parents' basement with that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, hang on real quick. You know, there's a skit and it's always, do you watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Absolutely. 
there's a skit. I don't know if you remember this, but for those who aren't watching, there's a skit where Charlie Charlie Kelly mixes ammonia and bleach in the bathroom yep. and then he gets high off of it. <laughs> so, I, I don't know if you get high off that mixture, but you would die. Definitely get knocked out by it. <laughs> but well, I'm 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 glad to hear that you were uh, fascinated by mixing things together and you know, I think I think all chemists low key are um, oh my god, what's the word? Pyromaniacs? No. Um, pyromaniacs. Yeah, pyromaniacs. The low key, like not 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 like any you know big deal, but so that that was your that was your um into that was your fame to chemistry, just like mixing stuff together. Pretty much. So, okay, so you're in you're in undergrad. Was there anything that stuck out to your your time in undergrad? Like, well, hang on, where'd you go again? I went to University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. So it's about two hours south of Chicago, out in like the farmlands. Mm-hmm. And how was that experience like overall? It was it was a nice experience. That's where my dad went. So that's how you know I got drawn to the school. You know, I had a lot of friends from high school that went there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a good experience. I ups and downs. I was not a good undergrad. I'll say that. Oh, what grade wise? <laughs> or are you up to grade wise, behavior wise, all oh. around? I was the student that I complain about now. Um, <laughs> well, hey, look, we all we all have that we all have that point in our life, and we'll get to that. We'll touch back to that a little bit to you, maybe advice to prospective students. But when did you realize that you wanted to go to graduate school and pursue like your PhD in chemistry? Well, specifically inorganic, but well, my my first introduction to inorganic it was one of the things that that stood out to me for my undergraduate career, um, and it was an inorganic lecture. We're covering a topic called the spectrochemical series. And based on this, you could look at inorganic compounds and make predictions about their color. And I always thought that was so cool that you could just do a calculation on paper and then predict what color something is. And that's kind of what got me interested in inorganic. And I did a little bit of undergraduate research on um, molybdenum complexes. Okay. Um, but then when I graduated, I didn't have good grades and grad school wasn't even a thought in my mind. It was, I find a job. I didn't have a job lined up when I graduated. <laughs> um, <laughs> went and spent a few months living with my parents in Minneapolis because they had, they had moved north at one point when I was an undergrad. Um, and then I ended up moving back down to the, the Chicago area. And I worked at a place called Cabot Microelectronics in Aurora. Okay. And what this place did was they made um, slurries and they, they, these solutions, they look like milk, this white opaque solution. Mm-hmm. And what they're used for is polishing down um, silicon wafers to make microchips. Mm-hmm. And so I worked in a QA lab and we get all these solutions coming in from production and we do tests on them. Mm-hmm. And there were basically four tests I would do. I would do density. We had something called a densitometer, which is a black box with a tube sticking out of it. Okay. Put it in the solution, press a button, it pumps some through and it spits out a number. I did viscosity, which is, you have a spindle that spins and you just put the cup up underneath it and then you write down the number it spits out. Um, Percent solids, so weigh it and evaporate it, calculate percent solids and feel like there was one more test in there but um let me guess you got bored of doing the same thing every day you got bored of 
Like very much so. It was very repetitive. I was pretty quick at it. Um, I was working second shift. So like two to 11 kind of hours. Okay. And, you know, I got caught when I came in, there's usually a backlog from the end of the previous shift. But once I caught up with that, I just had all this idle time and I was sitting around playing defend your castle, the old flash game, um, <laughs> wasting time. Cause there was nothing to do. Yeah. So bored with it. Um, and one of my friends was in grad school and he said, Hey, why don't you come to grad school? I said, I don't have the grades for that. And, yeah. You, you can still get in here. And so I, you know, I went and after a year off, I went and did grad school and, managed to to fix my behaviors and get better grades and kind of get things together well hey look a year a year out from i think of university definitely puts in perspective on it and i guess like taking your time like in a real job doing the same thing every day you just had this like epiphany you're like screw this i want to go do go do graduate school yeah I, i wasn't a fixed hours kind of person um it wasn't right for me and yeah, like I said, I was bored with it. So you you say so you now you're at graduate school. Um, this is where I think is I think this is probably the most fascinating about you. So you got your PhD in inorganic chemistry. Okay, right. so you're always you're always fond of that. But you did your postdoctoral work in organic chemistry and some. I, I assume this is biochemistry as well. Your mechanism. Biochemistry slash biology. Yeah. Right. So. Well, first of all, I want to ask about your, your, what was your thesis and your dissertation about for inorganic chemistry? Like what, what well, I didn't write work? a thesis. So I never got a master's degree along the way. I went okay. right from bachelor's to PhD. So my dissertation, I worked with um, platinum compounds. Mm-hmm. So um, it'd be easiest if I can draw this. Can I share my screen? And Absolutely. And- Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Let me see if I can give you privileges real quick. Yeah, you need to give me privileges. Okay, here. Um, let's see. Okay, I'm just gonna make you the host for now. There you go. Okay. So there's a compound. Have you heard of a compound called cisplatin? Probably in my probably. I I I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but okay. So here's the structure of cisplatin. It's a square planar compound with two chlorines and two ammonias on a platinum. Okay. And this is a rigid molecule. So the 90 degree angles, no real flexibility there. Okay. In water, these chlorines pop off. And then platinum seeks out um, bases and it likes nitrogen. And specifically, it'll bind to the N7 positions of guanine and adenine, two of the DNA bases. And what happens, I'm going to try to draw a double helix, and I know this is going to not look like a double helix. Oh, okay. So if you have two nitrogens on this strand, the platinum will attach there. Okay, these two chlorines will come off and it'll attach to those two nitrogens. Since you have this rigid geometry around the platinum, it'll curve the DNA around it so it can do this. And so the DNA gets curved around the platinum and it forms basically a kink in the DNA strand. And this interferes with processes like transcription and replication and it leads to cell death. So this is an anti-cancer drug. 
It's specifically, I mean, it's toxic to all cells, but cells that are rapidly dividing are the ones that get, you know, hit. This has been around, I think it was discovered in the 70s. Mm-hmm. A big drug for treating testicular cancer. Um, okay. Testicular cancer was nearly always fatal prior to the discovery of this drug. And now it has one of the highest cure rates. It was the drug Lance Armstrong was on as well. Oh, wow. And up to this point, people didn't really think there was medicinal value of transition metals. You know, all the drugs were organic chemicals. But there's a lot of problems with cisplatin, um, specifically with side effects and dose-limiting toxicity. So people have made a lot of derivatives of this compound to try to reduce the side effects and the toxicity. Okay. And so I was making derivatives that had a pyrophosphate group on them. So you'd have... This is really cool something that looks like this on there. I'm sorry, you said you were trying to synthesize these, right? This is what you were trying to synthesize? Yes, we were synthesizing platinum groups that had this pyrophosphate backbone on them. Mm. And then here, you'd have some nitrogen groups. So it could be an ammonia. It could be um, some other things like we used ethylene diamine. For those viewers right now that are just, that are just listening right now, basically you have this Dr. Mitchell just drew like an oxygen phosphorus ring around the platinum connected to the platinum. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. And so this is an ethyl group on the left. Um, so that's ethylene diamine. We also did diaminocyclohexane. It looks kind of like that. Obviously, I'm not drawing this to scale because I'm yeah. <laughs> drawing on a vertical board. So in water, which side pops up? It's the pyrophosphates that's the leaving group. Oh, okay. Those, those nitrogens are kind of stuck there. Gotcha. Okay. So, and that the other side of so those, those nitrogen groups, those are the ones that cause the kink in the these, these are this part of the structure doesn't change. This the part on the right comes off, and okay. that's where the nitrogens and the DNA attach. Gotcha. Okay. So the so the whatever you're so basically whatever you're putting on the right side of this molecule is essentially what your is what you want to be non-toxic, right? That's what you want to be. The non-nitrogen parts. Well, yeah, you want that to be non-toxic, but you want the whole thing to be non-toxic. Well, reduce toxicity. Okay. And so what was the issue with the cis-platinum? It was because the chlorines were like such an issue? It's, well, it's because it isn't specific for cancer cells. It can target any cell. Um, the dose limiting side effect for cisplatin, it's, it's been a while. I think it was, um, liver toxicity. Okay. Um, but you also get all the other fun chemo side effects like hair loss and tinnitus and, and various other things. Okay. So in theory, so I guess, so I guess the theory is that depending on what nitrogen groups you put on and whatever you have on the other side would dictate what cells it attacks. Well, it seeks out. DNA and there's evidence that it interacts with proteins as well. Okay. So were you specifically, so you were just trying to synthesize this, right? You weren't, you weren't necessarily interested in getting it to attack to certain cells, right? Well, I was doing synthesis. We also did kinetics experiments to see, um, 
in water, how long does it take for that group to come off that pyrophosphate group? Mm-hmm. We were doing a lot of my, my um, boss at the time was a big NMR person. So we did a bunch of inorganic NMR. We did phosphorus and platinum NMR to characterize these mm-hmm. and to do the kinetics to show the rate at which that group comes off. Okay. Someone else in the lab did some cell work and we showed the toxicity of this, and I believe it actually had improved toxicity over cisplatin and some cell lines. Okay. Um, one of the issues with cisplatin, you know, besides the toxicity and side effects, is resistance. And sometimes cells can acquire resistance to cisplatin, sometimes it's inherent. So we took a cisplatin resistant cell line and we showed that that these compounds were more effective in a resistant cell line than the parent drug. I wasn't doing the, the, um, cell studies. Okay. So what did you like? So at the end of your, at, at your dissertation, like what was the conclusion? Like, were there a couple of conclusions that you were able to make? Yeah. I mean, we made several of these compounds, um, there's a number of compounds that I made. They showed improved um, action over cisplatin in certain cell lines. Mm-hmm. My boss ended up founding a company to further investigate these, and several of these were patented as well. Wow, that is awesome. I see when people talk about their 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 work, it gets me excited for graduate school. So um, this is really cool. So I guess. Obviously, so the next question is like, so this, this, your work in um, your dissertation, your work in graduate school got you prepared for your first postdoc then, right? Right. Was was there any reason why you wanted to go pursue a postdoc before like going back into work or is it just like, you just wanted to keep doing Well, at the time I was set on, I'm going to go and be a professor and run my own lab. And that's what I wanted to do. And so that's the route because- if you're obviously that's not where I'm at so some things happened along the way that we'll talk about but um you know that's that's the next step you do you do your PhD you do a postdoc um which places that offer tenured positions they generally look for you to have that right are are postdocs being phased out like I mean I guess if you wanted to go be a professor you need postdocs right like I'm not under the impression they're being phased out okay Okay. Well, because I have interest in teaching, but I guess... Now, tenure, on the other hand, is slowly getting phased out. So... How is, how is that being phased out? Like, getting tenured? What does that even mean? Well, tenure basically means you're employed and they, the university can't release you without a really good reason. It's basically job security. Okay. Okay. How is that being phased out? seems like a good thing. Well, um, by hiring people that have positions like I do, I'm in a non-tenure track full-time position. Um, and by over-reliance on adjunct instructors. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Cause I know adjuncts don't get paid a lot. So they do a lot of work. Um, okay. But so going back to now to your postdoc though. Okay. So you did, so you did your work and it kind of aligns a lot with like organic and like pharmaceuticals. So mm-hmm. you took your, your first postdoc was in super molecular organic chemistry. So what specifically did you do? And like, what does that even mean? Well, let me tell you how I got there. So I yeah. really wanted to keep doing the platinum work. I was really into that. Um, 
And I had a really hard time finding someone to take me because it's in that bioinorganic realm. And I had the inorganic background, but I didn't have the bio background. Hmm. And despite that, I wanted to do the cell work. My boss put it off on someone else and I never got that experience. So I had a hard time finding a group to take me. Hmm. I had a applied to a group where I'd, I'd written a letter to a group at Tulane in New Orleans. It was a group doing platinum work. It wasn't the cancer stuff, but it was still platinum chemistry. And he wrote back and said, I don't have a job in my lab at this time, but there's this other guy I work with who's looking for someone. Let me send you his name. And this other guy, you know, calls me out of the blue and says, I'm a professor at Tulane and I'm looking for, for someone to come work in my lab. And we talked about it. Absolutely nothing to do with my PhD. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I went down to Tulane and I spent two years there. Uh, I can show you what I was working on. Yes, please. Um, um, <laughs> so we are working with these molecules called cyclodextrins, all right? Now, all you need to know about cyclodextrins is it's kind of got a truncated comb shape. It's hollow in the middle, and you can encapsulate things inside. It's a cyclic sugar molecule, okay? And so this is like this truncated cone with a hollow interior. And because of that, you can stick things inside of them. And so you could do things like take a drug and sandwich it between two cyclodextrins. Mm. Okay? And incidentally, this is the active component in Febreze, um, these cyclodextrins, because they basically pick up order molecules and they get trapped inside these things. So the idea here was we're going to take a DNA hairpin loop. So you have this hairpin loop. Excuse my art. These well, are all base pairs. art school. So yeah, these are all base pairs up the neck. Okay. And then this is just a single strand of DNA. All right. And what we wanted to do is on the ends of this, attach these cyclodextrin groups. Mm. The idea is we could trap a drug between these. And then if we bring in the complementary strand to this DNA, the hairpin would unravel and then the drug would be released. And we know that in certain cancers, you have these small RNA chains. And so if we make this complementary to one of those small RNA chains, you could theoretically target a cancer cell and where that RNA is being produced, this would open up and that would release the drug. Okay, that was the goal of the project. Now, we didn't really get there. <laughs> it was like many uh, other things. A two year experiment in futility. The main issue we had is we needed to be able to see that the drug was going in and out. We needed to be able to prove we brought in this complementary strand and it released the drug. Okay. We chose a drug called CD437. It had a planar aromatic ring on one side and something called an adamantyl group on the other side. Okay. And we showed, so the first step is to show it can do this kind of two to one 
binding or sticking the inside. All right. How did you prove that? Like NMR and like X-ray diffraction? NMR. NMR, okay. NMR. Um, then the question is, can we open this up and show that the drug's being released? And so NMR, we also used fluorescence, okay, to do this. Mm. Now, the problem is you need some sort of spectroscopic handle. And to do this, we had this large, flat, planar, aromatic region on this molecule, which would fluoresce. So it's great. We can monitor it. There's a change when it's encapsulated versus whether it's out. Okay. okay. We could, again, show that it has this two-to-one binding. Mm -hmm. But when we open it, we didn't get the results we expected. Okay. We'd expect that, you know, it'd be a, you introduce the DNA, it opens up and you get this change in the fluorescence. The problem is because you have that flat region, that flat region can slide between two DNA bases and, mm. and percolate into the DNA change. And then it's still shielded from the surrounding water. So because we had that group there and we needed that to measure this with fluorescence, it was also being a problem because it was slipping into the DNA helix. So okay. never was able to conclusively um, show this, unfortunately. Out of curiosity, are they still working on this now? Or I don't think so, but it's been, it's been 10 years. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, I think, this is, I think this is still pretty cool. Um, the super molecular stuff, it's, it's about um, self-assembly, large-scale self-assembly, and it's a lot of really cool organic stuff there that you don't really get exposed to at the undergraduate level. So what was the purpose, though, of like, because it just seems like it almost kind of reminds me of like a pill. Like if you have these two, if you have the two to one binding, you have two halves and you just put something inside of it. Why not just deal with the pill? Like, like what? Well, the, the idea is it'd be targeted because the RNA that you would need to unlock this is oh. that's produced by certain types of cancer. Okay. So, so we want that targeted release in the cancer area. Okay. So, okay. So let me try and get this straight. So in theory, cancer releases this RNA that would unlock the, the drug that you have. It would cause the hairpin to unravel. Yep. Oh, and then what? So then that, then in theory, whatever was inside of your, inside of the, um, I guess, in, what, what do they call it? The cyclo, the cyclo, what do they call it again? Cyclodextrin. So whatever was inside the cyclodextrin would be unlocked by the RNA, and then that would attack the cancer? That's the idea, yeah. Oh, okay. That, okay. That's really cool. Shame it didn't work, but yeah. at least didn't really get inconclusive, but people are still working on it. Do you think that there is a uh, solution to cancer yet, and um, no one's really – it's just not um, monetized? Or I don't think the – solution to cancer is strictly in chemistry okay. there's there's not going to be a one drug cure-all that's based on a chemical a specific chemical molecule mm -hmm. um the future of cancer therapy is the the car t therapy and the individualized cancer therapies right. which are immunology based yeah i have a lot of friends that, that ask me because like you know i i bring on like I, you know elena fadikova Mm -hmm. they do i mean obviously in chemical engineering they do they do cancer immunotherapy stuff 
like there's so much cancer research and people ask me like, you know, like, is there a cure to cancer? I'm like, well, there, first of all, it's not like one size fits all. Like every cancer is way individualized that you wouldn't even believe. Even if there was, the, the question is, you know, is there money to be made, you know, people charging people to cure cancer? So I always say like, I don't know, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question, but I, I doubt it. I don't think there's a solution yet to any cancer, but we'll see. Okay, so then how did you, okay, so then you did your, your second postdoc. So how did, you, how did you arrive to your second postdoc and then what did you do in that one? Well, first postdoc was done, needed a job. I applied to a variety of things. I applied to industry positions. I applied to postdocs. I applied to faculty positions. And this one just popped up and it was in Texas in San Antonio. And this guy's studying aging and he's doing mass spec stuff. And he has somebody that's working for him and he's about to leave. I need somebody that can do some mass spec. So he's looking to hire a chemist, even though he's running a biology lab. And I didn't have any other offers. So eight hours down the road and ended up in <laughs> San Antonio. Um, hey, real quick, before you end this, San Antonio, I hear is a beautiful city. Um, like, I hear it's an awesome city. Is that true? San Antonio is a nice city. Yes. Nice. You wouldn't say it's breathtaking? Hearts? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. San Antonio is an interesting mix. So there's a lot of military there. I think there's three bases. There's a couple Air Force bases and an Army base in San Antonio. You have a big medical center in North San Antonio, um, the UTSA, and then I was actually part of the UTSA network. No, I was part of the UT Health Science Center network. So you have UTSA and then UT Health Science Center. Mm. And so up in like North San Antonio, you have a bunch of, you know, college people and medical professionals. And it's largely Hispanic. And there's a significant amount of German population in the area surrounding right. San Antonio. So... It's, it's an interesting kind of blend of things. Hmm. Um, that's the, is that where, is that where the, the Longhorns are, the Texas Longhorns? No, that is not. Uh, that's Austin, about an hour and a half north of San Antonio. Gotcha. Okay, never mind. Okay, so now you're in San Antonio doing, well, biology, biochemistry work. So Yeah. So, yeah, I went from New Orleans to San Antonio. Big difference from New Orleans. New Orleans is just crazy. Um, is that good or bad? <laughs> I guess not so good for productivity. Depends <laughs> on who you ask. Um, so yeah, I end up in this lab, and this guy's studying C. elegans. Okay. So what are those? C. elegans. It's a nematode. It's basically a little tiny worm. The adults are about a millimeter long. You can barely see them with the naked eye. You can't see the eggs and the larvae with the naked eye. It's a really widely studied organism. I know you guys are all familiar with Drosophila. Um, flies. Woo! Yeah, C. elegans is, I would say, as widely used as Drosophila. Okay. Okay, it's a really common organism. And it's easy to do genetic manipulation in them. So I did a couple of things. Um, first of all, I was just the 
all around. This is too expensive to buy. Make it for me, guy. Um, <laughs> I actually have my name on a paper where I did nothing other than synthesize one of the chemicals for a research group um, because yeah. they knew I could do the synthetic chemistry. <laughs> but the main brunt of the project was doing something called metabolomics. And so the idea here is you can culture these worms in a buffer solution, like um, phosphate buffered saline. And they excrete metabolites, basically the end products of the different metabolic processes. And they spit these out like directly into solution. So then we can suck up the solution and shoot it through GCMS and look at what chemicals are in there, okay? And what we were trying to address was there is a variety of um, genetic mutants that have disruptions somewhere in the mitochondrial electron transport chain. And several of these are long-lived compared to the wild-type animals. The wild-type animals live, uh, it's been a, been a while, I want to say around 21 days. And you can get significant life extension with some of these mitochondrial mutants, which begs the question, well, mitochondria is good. Why is screwing with the mitochondria leading to lifespan extension? Mm. And, and not all mitochondrial mutants have lifespan extension. It's only certain ones. Mm. Okay. And so we're analyzing the chemicals these worms are producing and trying to trace backwards the metabolic pathways and figure out what pathways were disrupted and why. And the proposal was that, is it possible that this pattern of chemicals, well, let me, let me back up a sec. Sure. We found that several of these long-lived mitochondrial mutants produce the same pattern of chemicals. Okay. And this is different from non-long-lived mitochondrial mutants. And it's different from long-lived mutants that don't have a mitochondrial mutation. Okay. So there's something that's unique about these, this set of long-lived mitochondrial mutants. They're all producing the same pattern of chemicals. And so we were postulating that maybe it's the chemicals that are responsible for the lifespan extension. We were able to figure out why they all produce the same pattern of chemicals. And now we were trying to figure out why they live longer. Mm. And so then we were going and feeding mixtures of these chemicals back to wild type animals and trying to see if we could extend their lifespan just by feeding them this chemical cocktail. Mm. So results were varied, probably yeah, varied. <laughs> we achieved modest lifespan extension with some of the chemicals and some of the combinations of chemicals. Um, so that's kind of where that was left at. Hmm. Well, is there any any uh, further? Do you have you like touch like touch base with them um, since you like left it or like? They, they're no longer doing metabolomics. Mm. So it's probably too complicated. It's probably too complex. Like, how do you like, like, how do you keep one thing controlled and study it, those things? You know? It's very complex. One of the issues is the way you culture these animals. They live on an agar plate and there's this film of E. coli on top and they mm. just crawl around the surface and eat the bacteria. That's the food, food source for them. Mm. So the question now is how do we drug them? 
Do we add these chemicals directly to the plates? And if so, how do we know that they're being metabolized by the worms and not by the bacteria on the plate? Mm. So yes, it is very complicated. Um, a lot of variables. I mean, temperature is a variable. When you keep all the worms in a, in a temperature controlled 20 degree fridge and hmm. yeah, yeah, it's the biological organism. It's very complex. Well, what I think is honestly most fascinating about what we've been talking about so far is you, first of all, your journey from a, like, you know, a very nonchalant kind of a screw off student you know, to now like two postdocs, a PhD, um, you know, like, what do you make of like that journey? Like, what do you, like, you look back and it's like, wow, look at all that, uh, that I've like accomplished. Like, what do you think, what do you make of it? I wish I'd done more. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean by more? Like in your undergrad, your graduate, like just- I'm in my undergrad. I'm my undergrad. I wish I had um, not screwed around as much, gotten better grades. It would have opened more opportunities for graduate school. Mm -hmm. Wow. So then the next question is, you know, how did you end up at Wyvern, right? So you finished up your second postdoc and then I guess you're here all of a sudden, you just popped in? Well, <laughs> so the second postdoc, um, my boss didn't have tenure yet. So he was still, you know, a young faculty member trying to get tenure. Mm. And I would come into the lab in the mornings and he would be asleep in a stool curled up somewhere in the lab because he was sleeping at work. Wow. Um, he was still at the bench doing experiments himself in addition to writing grants. And I said, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and Actually, one of the, the professors at Tulane told me that when he was, was um, doing his postdoc, he was working over 100 hours a week. And I said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, um, I kind of um, lost um, wanting to go to our one institution, a research-heavy institution, and do that kind of work because it wasn't what it wasn't the work-life balance I wanted. Sure. And so, plus on top of that, I was not a fan of writing grants and I didn't have any grants under my belt, which really hurt my competitiveness trying to go for a tenure track job at an R1 institution. The other issue is my diverse background is more of a liability than an asset. Because really? they want people who are experts in one subject. I mean, that's kind of what you, you know, you're looking for a tenure track position. You're supposed to be an expert in your field and they're looking for people that, you know, are an expert in one area versus I know a little about this. I know a little about this. I know a little about this. Sure. And so I remember when I was in grad school, I was a TA for the entire time I was there. Hmm. And I actually taught inorganic lab and PCHEM lab. Um, PCHEM. Yeah, <laughs> I was a PCHEM lab instructor. And I was really good at it. The, the undergrads liked me. Um, I, at least I thought I was good at it. And I always liked that. So I started to look for opportunities in teaching. 
And at the time I was chairing the Delaware, or not Delaware, the San Antonio section of the American Chemical Society. Mm. I had some ins there. I got a few adjunct positions um, at some different schools in San Antonio. And once my postdoc ended, I was teaching seven classes a semester, which sounds insane now, at three different schools. And I was driving between the three schools in the San Antonio area. Holy Christ. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was um, pretty rough. Um, but then my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, hey, nice. finished her PhD because she was um, getting her PhD while I was doing my second postdoc at the same school. So that's how we met. And she got a postdoc offer at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Wow. And so we said, well, I'm adjunct teaching. I can do that anywhere. Mm. So might as well move out to Philadelphia. And so we moved up to Manayunk in 2014. I got a three-fourths time teaching position at Richard Stockton, which is in New Jersey, almost all the way out to the coast. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like a, isn't it like an hour and a half ride? About an hour and a half commute from Manion. Oh my God. Um, fortunately, I became friends with one of the other the people that was teaching there. He was driving from Ardmore, so we had the same commute. So we were able to, to split that. Um, okay. So I taught there for a year. Um, then once that was over, I went and I worked at Manor College in Jenkintown for a year. That's like an hour in the other direction, isn't it? No, Jenkintown was about 30 minutes from me. Okay, okay. Um, but then after a year, they let me go, and they said it was due to a drop-in enrollment. No, I'm not going <laughs> to theorize on that. Um, <laughs> we'll let that one be. It's a very small school. They had two okay. chemistry faculty. They decided they only needed one. And we'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, um, we're off to better places anyway. I, I am glad I am no longer there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and I found the job at, at Widener. That was 2016. I found the job at Widener and I've been there since. And I really like it at Widener. So, you know, I'm happy to be there. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it was a, it sounds like a crazy ride for you. I know. I remember, um, oh my God, there was, before the COVID, there was, was it an ACS thing that your wife had brought into Widener and we were all there? What was, I forget what it was. Oh, it was, I forget what it was. My was wife it? and I, um, at one of the, the president's welcome back parties, we, we ran into uh, Dean Lehman, um, mm -hmm. the, the arts and sciences dean, and he had invited her to come and give a talk on her, um, and her background and her career path. And it was kind of an unofficial part of the science seminar series um, that had its own special time and date. Um, mm. But yeah, she had a chance to come and, and talk at Widener. She um, is a scientific editor for American Association of Cancer Research, a journal called Cancer Immunology Research. Mm. And so she does, does um, work with them. That's incredible. What was her what was her PhD in? Was it in chemistry? My PhD was in inorganic chemistry. Her no, her PhD. 
Oh, her PhD, her PhD is in um, microbiology and immunology. She's an immunologist. And then she, uh, and then, uh, okay. I was, okay, that's cool. I was just curious. So, so now you're here at Widener. Um, what, what are some of like your favorite moments here? Even though you only, you only spent four years here, so. Yeah, I've only been here four years. I mean, I taught 390 for the first time last year and I really enjoyed that. I'm Can't really wait. looking forward to teaching 375 next semester because I yeah. have never taught inorganic. <laughs> so, it's just crazy because your PhD is in that, so. <laughs> it, it is crazy. And, you know, part of the reason I got my PhD in inorganic is I really hated organic when I was an undergrad. Like, organic too was not my friend. And my naive mind thought that inorganic was the opposite of organic, which is not true at all. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to be an inorganic major. Um, and ironically, I've taught organic labs and lectures numerous times at numerous places and never <laughs> inorganic. <laughs> uh, that, that, is, that is funny. Oh, my God. Um, I thought inorganic was the opposite of organic. <laughs> <laughs> that one's going down that i have to keep that one in the record book um, um no i've really enjoyed it at widener um you know I, I trying to think of anything specific but i have enjoyed my time there yeah just overall what do you think let me ask you this because i mean i had you for gen chem too it was just, oh man that was what even was that three years ago two years ago Something like that, yeah. What do you think some of like the misconceptions are like about you? And like you want that some of your students they want you think that should know about you? Well, I always get in my course evaluations that my students think that I'm inapproachable. And I don't feel that way about myself. So I wish my students wouldn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. I do occasionally have a low tolerance and I certainly have high expectations um, but it comes from the fact that I don't want my students to repeat my mistakes right and, and I see a student acting the way I did when I was an undergrad you know it bothers me because I don't want to see somebody else go down that path and I try to you know talk to students that are struggling and, and phrase it that way that you know, I know where you're coming from, but you really need to make the life changes now because, you know, it comes to a point that it, it follows you. You know, I didn't get into a top tier graduate program because I did not have top tier undergraduate grades. Right. I did not get the best postdoc because I did not go to a top tier graduate program mm -hmm. and it follows you. And right. Did but, you teach, did you teach Gen Chem 1 or did you, was it just Gen Chem 2? Was it both? I teach both. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, like it's tough because I think a lot of, well, first of all, I think a lot of chem faculty get that. Like they, they seem like they're inapproachable. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I mean, like I was, I was never afraid to ask questions. Like I'm not afraid to like do anything, but you know, so I'm, I'm different in that way, but I guess for the common student, like it's, it's tough because First of all, I think I think Gen Chem in, in by and large is already like a tough subject for a lot of students, and I wish it weren't, but it is. So there's already there's that. So people are already feeling down about that, and then like they get nervous to ask the professors questions and, and stuff. But you know, what do you think? Like, 
what do you think that we can do as like to like alleviate some of the pressure that goes on with like gen chem because a lot of students get really like down bugged down by it but i don't think it's that difficult well it, it's a mixture of things i mean what i would say to the freshmen is go to office hours right I mean, we have the chemistry tutor center and then we all have office hours and they are so underutilized mm -hmm. and that really is the best thing for struggling students to do. Is there any advice that you would like you would give to like prospective students and students in general? If you could circle back to everything that you've learned? Give it your all. You only get one shot at it. I mean, yeah. that, 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 that's my advice. You only get one shot at it. So make the most of it for sure. I try to live that every day, yeah. you know? And... and I, in hindsight, I didn't think that way when I was when I was younger, and that's really you know because it's still in high school mentality. And for me, my big problem was I got through high school, top ten percent of my class out of seven hundred plus students, um, took a bunch of AP classes, math through calculus. Um, I took chem, bio, physics, and I didn't open a book in four years. Right. And I didn't have study habits because I never needed to study. Mm. And then I get to college and, you know, I don't have any study habits. I don't have any study skills and I can't skate by anymore. And yeah. it just, everything comes crashing down. Mm -hmm. Isn't that so fascinating? That's always been so fascinating to me that you can skate by like from even even for myself, like I skated by like like AP chemistry. Now AP chemistry was really was different was easily the hardest class I think in, in high school. But you know, I passed it with an A without even opening a book. Like so it's crazy to me how that design and then you get hit. I mean, you get smacked right in the face, I think. Um, you know, first like freshman year. And in a lot of ways, you cut the baggage. Like for like first and second semester of chemistry will cut will cut the baggage. Like it will cut people out if you're not ready for it. Um, and I think it's truly a disservice to chemistry everywhere because uh, I don't know. Like I think someone everyone should have at least a basic knowledge of it. But I don't know. It gets it gets shafted as like this like terrible subject. You know, crazy to me. Let me ask you this. What was like, so you've, you've traveled a lot around the United States, like being in like your, your undergrad, postgrad mm -hmm. docs. Um, and now you're here in, you know, many young Philadelphia area. Now, you know, actually, I'm in Delaware now. Okay. You're in Delaware. Where, in Delaware where are you in Delaware? Now. Wilmington? Uh, we're, in, we're in Claymont. We're literally just over the state line off I-95. Okay. Are you by the big fine wine and spirits or the... Uh... I can walk there. I'm right behind it. I love that story. That story is great. Um, what do you think? Where, where's like, what's like been your favorite city that you've been to? I'm also going to include, I don't know if you travel anywhere, but I also want to include those cities too. I've traveled a lot. Um, New Orleans was a blast. Um, I don't think I would ever want to long-term live in New Orleans. Mm. It's certainly not a place I would, would want to settle down. Um, 
But is Mardi Gras is Mardi Gras overrated or is it actually really fun down there? It's a blast. So let me tell you about New Orleans. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and it's a blast. And I was there right out of grad school. So I was when I moved there, 20, I was 27 when I moved to New Orleans. And prime time for New Orleans. It was great. Um, old enough to drink and a little bit more mature. Yeah. And so I get down there. I meet my neighbor. I'm in this like fourplex apartment complex. Neighbor goes, So you're going to go to Muses tonight? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, that's the all, all woman crew. That's when they, they throw the shoes. They're even rarer than the coconuts. And I'm just looking at them like, Wait, what? And a word of this. <laughs> they so sure enough. <laughs> so now you got to go, I guess, right? The parades for Mardi Gras start about a month before actual Mardi Gras. Oh, my God. And they run like once a week and then they start picking up and then they'll start running two or three a night. The Thursday before Fat Tuesday, they have an all-woman parade crew called Muses. And everybody hand decorates a pair of high heel shoes with glitters and sequins and stuff. And they toss them from the floats like they do the beads. Okay. And people fight over them. My friend dislocated his shoulder trying to get a shoe. Because <laughs> they're collector's items. <laughs> oh my God. And then on Fat Tuesday, the parades start at eight in the morning. The first parade is Zulu, which is the African-American parade. Okay. And they hand decorate and throw coconuts from the floats. And people fight over them. <laughs> did, did anyone ever explain to you why they do that? Is it like a cultural thing or are they just random, like super random? They just do I, I don't know all the history of all the different Mardi Gras crews. There's, there's a, a bunch of different crews and they have their scheduled times and their parades. And we lived, or I lived, a block and a half off the parade route in uptown so not in like the french quarter i was in uptown new orleans mm -hmm. and for mardi gras everything kind of shuts down like the fat tuesday the entire town is shut down schools are shut down the post office is shut down did you take off did you i assume you took off grad work those days you, you can't get anywhere because of the parades mm -hmm. and the massive amounts of people um in the middle of St. Charles, which is the street I, I lived off of, there's, they call it the neutral zone, but it's big grassy median. Mm -hmm. People would set up tents, put kegs out, um, and just camp out there and hang out. And it was just nuts, like flat out pandemonium. Wow. And, that sounds really and, fun. Yeah, it's fun. Um, St. Patrick's Day, they throw cabbage and carrots from the floats. Um, <laughs> are those are those designer designer items too i don't think so i think that's just cabbage and carrots <laughs> it's, it's just such a wacky town yeah and, and i didn't live near the french quarter i had to you know I was a few miles away from that madness but yeah still, it's pretty crazy out of curiosity you ever been to like a saints game were you ever like did you ever go to one of those I've been to the Superdome, but not for a Saints game. Okay. So we saw Lane used to play their games at the Superdome. Okay. Because I know the Superdome is like, I mean, that is like, it's like, like incredible. And when I was there, that was when the Saints won the Super Bowl. So. Holy. Uh, Saints won the Super Bowl. 
They had the Saints Parade, which was also during Mardi Gras season, so we shoved another parade in there. Oh my god! We actually went to that. We went to the Saints Championship Parade. Dude, that sounds like I don't even. It sounds like the Philadelphia Parade, but like on steroids. Like, oh my god! New Orleans does partying to the max. That is for sure. (laughs) Did anyone tell you why they celebrate Mardi Gras? Like, why? Like, is there any reason why they picked Mardi Gras to be like their like? I, I don't know. I do not know. I mean, the city has Spanish and French influences. Um, it, it's got an interesting history. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly, St. Louis also celebrates Mardi Gras. I believe they have the second largest one in the country. Really? Okay. Yeah. Do you Have you, like, traveled anywhere else, like, vacation? Like, where, where else have you traveled to? We've been – I've been – over most of the country i think i'm missing seven states um so are two of them alaska and hawaii what's that are two of them alaska and hawaii i was in hawaii when i was eight and we were supposed to go to hawaii in this last may and that didn't happen yeah well i was also supposed to go to italy and germany this past summer and that didn't happen so Uh, i'm sorry to hear that one yeah yeah COVID really messed with travel travel plans did you at least get a voucher? Can you, when this is over, can you? Well, American Airlines gave me a, um, a one-year voucher. And oh, I'm going to call year. back and go, it's been a year and I still don't want to get on an airplane. What can you do? <laughs> and we'll see. We'll see what they say. Um, yeah, New Orleans was definitely a fun city. Um, other places I've been, I mean, I've traveled a lot for the ACS conferences. Yeah, is there anything like stick out? Like, what's like a yeah. San Francisco was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know um, my, my second year anniversary with my wife, uh, we went to Breckenridge, went skiing in Colorado. Um, You're a skier? No. <laughs> oh, oh. Are you a watcher? Is your wife skis? I skied a few times in high school. Um, some of my friends and I drove out to Vermont and went skiing in Mount Killington or something. I had never been to skis before. And my, my idiot friends put me on a black diamond with moguls. And you know it was black diamond? Didn't know what a black diamond. Don't, didn't know my ratings and... <laughs> <laughs> I certainly didn't know what a mogul was, and I certainly didn't know you're supposed to go around them and not over them. Oh my god! <laughs> oh Jesus! So, wow. Yeah. Well, well, Doctor Misher, I want to thank you so much for hopping on the show. You're first of all, you've got a lot of stories bottled up in there. Um, I definitely want to have you on here again sometime in the future. Um, we can expand on those stories, but. And all your wisdom, all your uh, experiences, I want to thank you again for coming on to the show. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. So without further ado, I mean, if you like the content, please make sure you like and subscribe. Um, Dr. Misher, he'll be here in organic next spring. Um, so get ready for it. All right, everyone. Thank you.